Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Food changes, our lives change, gender roles change, but I think relationships with food and what it means and its power in our lives can still tell us an enormous amount. That was Laura Shapiro. She's author of What She Ate, a profile of six famous women and their relationship to food, from Helen Gurley Brown to Eleanor Roosevelt and Rosa Lewis. I'll be speaking to her later in the show. But first, Milk Street is headed to Okinawa, Japan. Reporter Amy Gutman is on location to order the island's most famous dessert. So I've just arrived at the Blue Seal flagship shop in Okinawa. Families are posing for pictures, and just outside of the ice cream parlor is their logo, which says, since 1948, born in America, raised in Okinawa. Could I try the Ben Emo, the purple sweet potato? I have Amy Gutman here today on Milk Street Radio to talk about her visit to Okinawa. That's where she visited the famous Blue Seal Ice Cream Shop, a brand that was started on an army base right after World War II. Amy, how are you? I'm good, thanks. We're talking about Blue Seal Ice Cream in Okinawa. Could you just give us a little bit of history? This is after World War II. There's a U.S. base there and they wanted to serve a taste of home to the soldiers. That's right. So Okinawa is a fascinating place. Of course, it was home to one of the bloodiest battles in World War II. And there were a number of bases there right after the war, and there continue to be. So you see lots of U.S. military uh, troops all over the island still. But one of the really biggest holdovers from that era has been Blue Seal Ice Cream, which began its life uh, in 1948 on a military base to, as you mentioned, give the troops a taste of home. 
For the longest time, it was only available on base, but Okinawans knew about it because many locals had jobs on base. Then in 1963, a local entrepreneur got permission to move it off base and make it a real commercial proposition. And it's it's been a sort of symbol or emblem of this interesting history on Okinawa ever since. So, Amy, you went there, you went to Okinawa, and uh, who did you chat with when you were there? I spoke with Arisa Odo, who uh, works in the marketing department for Blue Seal, and all the people who work there are incredibly proud. They have these big smiles on their faces. There were these cute uniforms. And she she very happily shared with me you know, the complete history and, you know, and flavor profiles and, and all the background. What's interesting is this Blue Seal ice cream does actually use a lot of local ingredients. I, I guess they have the classic American ice creams. But they also have some uh, <laughs> very un-American ice creams that sound delicious. Can we just talk about some of those? What are some of the ingredients they use in the ice cream? I asked Arisa about that. Here's what she said. This one, yeah, Benimo. This is originally from Okinawa. We use a purple sweet potato, and this is a shikwasa sherbet. This is Okinawan lemon. And we have Okinawan sochi cookies. Yes, we use the salt from Chatham area. Mm. Okinawan salt cookies are enormously popular as a souvenir to take home. And this, this is basically a sort of semi-salted shortbread, which is delicious. So they have a flagship store, right, which is in Okinawa. Could you just describe it? Because it sounds like, you know, Happy Days or something. <laughs> it, it does look like it's something out of Happy Days. There's a big neon sign outside, which is an ice cream cone with three scoops um, and the colors of the logo are red, white, and blue. There's a striped awning outside, and you walk in, and it's basically just um, a world of pastels. You know, it very much has that back to the 1950s feel. And in the corner, at the counter, they've got a life-size sort of American GI. Yeah, I saw that. It's a little creepy. <laughs> it is a little creepy. So you went to the store. Uh, what did you order, and uh, what did you think? I, I really like the sugar cane, which has a subtle hint of brown sugar. I really like the Ryukyu Royal Milk Tea, even though I never take milk in my tea. It had a lovely sort of familiar flavor. So this is part of the history of Okinawa, right? I mean, this is the, the brand is part of history of Okinawa. The brand is part of history. That history is is so complex and so interwoven. America launched troops for the Korean War, for the Vietnam War, um, GIs would come back to Okinawa after combat in Vietnam. They have black and white sepia-toned images of the original Blue Seal ice cream, you know, on base. And I think there's a mutual appreciation here for how successful they've become. I just have to comment. I, I like the absurdity of history. You know, three generations later, almost, you're left uh, this horrible war with ice cream as sort of being the, the memory in, in some ways. We can export our foods and our, our music, and that seems to have a longer effect than uh, some of the more brutal part of history. I mean, it's, it's interesting that we're left with Blue Seal ice cream, right? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I guess, uh, you know, in a strange way, you could consider it almost soft diplomacy. <laughs> Very soft. <laughs> 
Amy Gutman, thank you so much. Uh, Blue Seal Ice Cream, born in America, raised in Okinawa. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. That was reporter Amy Gutman back from a recent trip to Blue Seal Ice Cream in Okinawa, Japan. You can subscribe and listen to Milk Street Radio anytime as a podcast. New shows are available every Friday on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify. Simply subscribe and get all of our shows downloaded right to your phone. Right now, my esteemed co-host Sarah Malt and I will take some of your calls. Sarah, of course, is the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready? Chris, let's do this. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Well, hi. My name is John Caldwell from Philadelphia. How can we help you? Well, listen, I'm a chemist, and I am always frustrated when I see TV demonstration chefs just start dumping salt and spices into a dish without mixing them up or distributing them very well. There's a whole area of chemical engineering dealing with mixing to make sure things get distributed. And I wonder, you know, absent a soup or a stew, how do you distribute the spices properly if you don't mix them and think about it? If I'm adding to flour or sugar, I would use a whisk and whisk uh-huh. them together, wouldn't you? Yes, Yeah, I would too. And then that does, you do it for a few seconds, that'll distribute it. You can look at the color pretty yeah. evenly throughout. But there's something, there is something weird about cooking, which is that if you take egg whites and underfold them into a batter where you see streaks. Mm-hmm. Yep. When that cake comes out of the oven, there are no streaks. Everything melts together. So I think heat and moisture, well, you're a chemical engineer, heat and moisture, I think, actually do, in the oven, end up distributing things fairly evenly. Does that make any sense to you? Oh, well, it does. But just imagine you're, you've got a big fry pan. You're going to end up putting it in the oven. You've got six chicken thighs, and you dump all the spices on two of them. I think yeah, four is going to be in, end up being unseasoned. Yeah, that's true. Nobody seems to care about that well, on TV. That, that's because probably those people don't know how to cook anyway. <laughs> Jeez, Sarah, no, you're being a little quite, harsh here. No, there, mean, are, there are quite a few people who end up on TV who really Oh, are here we just, go. Here we go. They're attractive, telegenic. They've got cleavage. They've got muscles. Whatever. Well, well, Sarah and I don't have muscles. We don't have cleavage. I no. have cleavage. <laughs> This is the best call ever. John, look what you've done. I neither muscles nor cleavage. (laughs) You know, I will tell you, I am a fan of paper plates. I use them all the time when I cook. And if you just dump your, you know, chili powder, spices, peppers, salt, whatever you're going to use, the garlic, dehydrated garlic, you put them in a paper plate and just sort of cycle them back and forth a few times, you've mixed them. Yeah. And you can distribute them on the food. Voila, it's done, but nobody seems to care. No, no, you make a good point. No, I think you're right. In baking, I think it kind of works, but if you talk about chicken in a skillet, you're absolutely right. You know what I sometimes do is I'll take a piece of parchment, and this is also when I'm applying flour, you know, I'm going to coat something with flour, and I'll add all the spices to the flour on top of the parchment, then I'll lift up the sides of the parchment many times, which yep. makes it all fold up together and sort of mix together before I put anything in it. That's one of the ways I mix them up. Well, just to go back to your cutting comments about people on cooking shows on television. There's lots of wonderful <laughs> well, people who are very knowledgeable there are, but, on TV, but too. I won't mention who this is, but there's a very well-known person who, when the cameras after the scene, spits the food out. Really? <laughs> yeah. She, she will not eat. She doesn't actually eat the food. She spits wow. it out. No, and I really should say, there's a lot of great people on TV, um, mostly on public television. Right, Chris? Absolutely. John, thank you. Thanks for calling. All right, bye, guys. Take care. Bye. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hey, this is Evan. Hey, Evan. How are you? Hi, Evan. I'm great. How can we help you? So I am obsessed with sourdough bread for about the last 
six months or a year, I've been making like a few loaves a weekend. Mm -hmm. When you get it right, there's nothing better, but it's easy to mess things up. (laughs) Are you having a problem with sourdough bread? I don't really have a problem as much as there's a thing I am obsessed with getting right that I have not been able to do. And I've been following the Tarkine method. You don't need if you do a fold every about 30 minutes for uh, anywhere from sort of two to four hours, depending on, you know, the weather. And I'm really on a quest to get that beautiful, long, stretchy crumb that I see pictures of where it's like when you cut a slice, it's like you can see through the bread all over. And, you know, some people don't like that, but if you spread jam on the piece of bread, there's so many holes, you're actually going to wind up with some jam, you know, on the other side of your countertop. Um, (laughs) And I just can't get it. This should be a poem, Ode to Sourdough. Wow. Because when you were talking about it, it was very romantic. You're a serious baker. I think I can answer. Usually the holes in bread is a function of hydration, that is how much water's in the bread. The more water in a bread, like a ciabatta, for example, then the more holes because you create steam. So it may be a function of water percentage, and that could also be affected by the state of your flour as well. The other thing we've been working on is pizza dough. And the thing that has the most effect on the quality of pizza is the temperature of the dough before you go to shape it. And it turns out that around 75 degrees is the right temperature. But I know in my house in the winter, it's like 67 or 8 the dough never gets warm enough. It doesn't really get active enough. So the other thing to check is whether your dough is actually getting active and is at the right temperature before you go to bake it. Got it. Do you find that bread flour makes that big of a difference? A lot of people say that that is a way yes. to get more. Yes, I, I, if you want a sourdough, a rustic boule kind of bread, I would definitely use. Bread flour. Bread flour. That also, bread flour, all purpose, require a different amount of liquid. Right. It'll change the amount of liquid you need. Which requires more. Bread flour, Bread right? flour yeah. requires more. It's, it's higher gluten. Higher, higher in protein, which right. is gluten. And so it needs more liquid. It's about 13% or so protein in all purposes, like gold medal, Pillsbury's 10 Le- to 11. 11, yeah. King Arthur's a little higher, but yeah, you need a little more water. So if you shift from one to the other, you have to add some water if you're going to bread flour, right? So what hydration percentage would you say? A typical bread's in the 70% range. I would say... Like a ciabatta or focaccia gets to 80 or even higher percent. So I would say you're probably in the 75% range. 75 to 80% would give you a lot of holes, something like that. That's by weight, of course. I would start with water and bread flour. That should solve your problem. Great. That will help. I'll pay attention to that temperature as well. Give that a shot. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks, Evan. Thanks. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a cooking failure, a conundrum, or if you just want to try to stump us, give us a ring at 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Hi, this is Lois from Georgetown, Delaware. Hi, Lois. How can we help you today? I have a question for canning. Okay. I have been canning for uh, 10 years or so. We grow our own tomatoes, and I know that there's a difference between the water bath canning and the canning with the pressure cooker, and I know that tomatoes are right on the edge of the two of them because of the acidity, and I'm wondering which I should be using for canning 
Samarzana tomatoes of my own. It's actually, we just have to clarify, it's a pressure canner, not a pressure cooker. Yeah, sorry, yes. I always thought tomatoes were so acidic. I mean, don't you think of them, Chris, that way as being acidic? Or you think of more being sweet? It's true. I mean, I I remember years ago, there was a recipe back in the 80s I did for canning green beans. Mm -hmm. And the recipe, by mistake, said use water bath, don't use pressure. Yeah. Which was a big mistake. But I guess tomatoes can go one way or, or the other. The other. You know, when you're canning things, they have to have a pH of 4.5 or below. Okay. And tomatoes are right on the cusp. So right. they can and they cannot. You don't necessarily know. So I think a good insurance is to at least add some lemon juice. The trouble with lemon juice is that it varies in its acidity. It's not always the same acid content. So either you should use the bottled lemon juice, which I think is pretty awful, but I'm sure you wouldn't notice it in canned tomatoes, or citric acid. Oh, it's citric acid. Yeah, but I think the problem with this discussion is you need to find out exactly how much to add because I think a teaspoon of lemon juice isn't going to cut it. And then also citric acid is much more concentrated, so it's a much smaller amount, right? Right. You know, Eugenia Bone, who wrote that wonderful book on preserving, I think what she says is about two tablespoons of lemon juice per pint. Two tablespoons? Yes, of lemon juice per pint. That's a lot. I think, you know, citric acid is more reliable, and I think that's much less. Maybe it's something like a quarter teaspoon. I have been using lemon juice. But how much were you using? I think I use a tablespoon. I top it off, basically, in a small quart jar. I would use more. You know what? So so this doesn't become the last episode of Mostly Radio (laughs) because we get sued. Um, You might want to get the exact amount because okay. you, you don't want to fool around. As with I this. said, what, what Eugenia recommended was two tablespoons per pint. And she would say, if you're using lemon juice, don't use fresh lemon juice. Use the bottled stuff, which mm. is consistent in its acidity mm. or use citric acid. What do you look for if something does go bad? Is it obvious or not? That's a really good question. Oh, I've had some stuff in the basement that was pretty obvious. The top starts to pop up. It's, yeah. You know, you can see that very quickly. Obviously, you want to smell it when you open the jar, but right. it was the top usually starts to pop because there's pressure. It's a matter of seeing it. Like, I've never had a problem before, but my concern is to give it to people. In Vermont, you give it to the most troublesome neighbor. You give them the first <laughs> pint. And then, then then come back in a week and see if they're still walking yeah, around, and yeah. then, then you're good yeah. to go. I don't take this lightly, and neither do you, I can tell. I would use citric acid and figure out the amount. I yes. like the idea of that because um, yeah. you can control that, too. I like that. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Anyway. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Laura Shapiro. She's a culinary historian, also an award-winning journalist. In her newest book, What She Ate, Shapiro profiles six famous women, from Ava Brown to Helen Gurley Brown, and their relationship to food. Coming up after the break. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. 
Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Mill Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com tours. That's 177milkstreet.com tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Laura Shapiro is a culinary historian. She's also an award-winning journalist. Her articles have appeared in the New York Times, Rolling Stone, and Gourmet. In her newest book, What She Ate, Shapiro writes about six famous women and their relationship to food. Laura, how are you? Fine, thank you. Very nice to be talking to you. Now this, I don't know what to make of this book. I'm absolutely fascinated by it. You've taken half a dozen uh, women of different levels of society over time and tried to figure out something about them through their food. How did you come up with this list? I know you've been asked that before, but that's where I'm going to start. Well, the first person I discovered for this, and the person who actually inspired the book, was Dorothy Wordsworth. I was just leafing through a biography of her, and the difference in the food that she ate at different times in her life really grabbed me when she was happy and living with her brother William in uh, in Dove Cottage in the Lake District. She's cooking all these wonderful things that are right around them, the food of the land, the food from her own hands. 25 years later, she's living with a nephew. She's in a bleak, hideous little part of England, surrounded by coal mining districts. She's eating black pudding. I thought, why can't I use food to explore that difference? Something happened to Dorothy Wordsworth. Her life changed over time. I thought if I could use food to follow that life, maybe I would really find something out. So once I had that idea, these other people kind of fell into place. You know, I, I used to love to watch Rumpole of the Bailey on the BBC, uh, those famous books, and he always referred to Wordsworth as the old sheep of the Lake District, which I guess is how I remember him. Uh, so she cooked for her brother. And, and just tell me about that. How old was she? Where were they living? How long did that last? This was a couple of years, and they had finally gotten to live together after being raised uh, separately. And... Uh, they are in their early 20s, and Wordsworth is trying to become the poet that he would become, and she's cooking just the food that is right around them. He'll go to the lake, and he'll fish, and he'll bring back the fish. They'll walk out behind the cottage and 
pull the apples off the trees. Neighbors will come by with things that uh, that they'll eat. Everything is very immediate and close to hand. So it's intimate food and it's food that's full of love. That's interesting. You can you can tell a lot about the psychology of a human by what they're preparing. But let's move on to Rosa Lewis now. But Rosa was a scullery maid. She learned to cook and she ends up at the height of London society as a female chef, etc. Wasn't she fairly consistent throughout her lifetime in terms of the food? Well, she started at the end of the Victorian era, so the end of the 19th century, and cooked her way through the Edwardian era, and then she she runs into World War I. So before World War I, you know, the, the, the popular fancy cooking of the time, this incredibly elaborate Escoffier-inspired cuisine, very expensive ingredients, everything very, very elite and elaborate. That's what she's doing. During World War I, of course, that all disappears. After the war, you know, the whole social structure of England really had changed. People didn't have that kind of money. They couldn't get the ingredients. You didn't have those teams of sous chefs and cooks in the kitchen able to do that stuff. So her cooking changed. She aged. She was no longer turning out that kind of food. So the food that had carried her up the social ladder disappeared, and she did not maintain her grip on that ladder. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, th- this one I, I knew something about. I read a fair amount about the food at the White House in the 30s. And uh, w- one description was stuffed eggs covered with tomato sauce, mashed potatoes, whole wheat bread, and a prune pudding for dessert. And Eleanor was so happy that it cost seven and a half cents per person. This was during the Depression, and she thought her husband and and the the first family should eat the way everyone else was eating. The, the only thing about that I just wonder is, don't you think Franklin was getting some real food on the side? I mean, I can't imagine <laughs> this guy was eating, you know, stuffed eggs and prunes for dessert. <laughs> he was hungry. There's no doubt about it. You know, his friends used to send him things. They knew he loved game, so they would send game in. And I imagine it had to be sort of checked out by White House security at that time. But he did get it. Uh, I love another quote. With an eye toward dispatching two necessary jobs, cooking and eating, as efficiently as possible. There's a lot of truth to that in in the American culture. Dispatching two necessary jobs, cooking and eating, they're referred to as necessary jobs. There's no joy in that. No, it's true. And that was Eleanor's view of food. She understood that it had a job to do. And, you know, she loved work. And here she had these wonderful progressive reform politics And food was part of that. Food could go out there. It could nourish America. It could help this country get through the Depression. People could learn to eat sensibly, to spend little on money. And she she just loved that as a kind of job for the kitchen and for the housewife. Everything she said would be simple and well-cooked, and that will just have to satisfy people. And, of course, it would have satisfied people had it been well-cooked. As you know, you can have simple food. You don't have to spend a lot of money. You just have to know what you're doing. Uh, Ava Brown, now how, why, why, how did you choose her? Uh, what did food have to do with understanding Ava Brown? 
I happened to read a biography of her. There are a couple of very good substantive biographies, and I, I read through her life. I got to see, in some ways, the kind of person she was. It didn't really answer the, the, the enormous question that you just have to have about her, which is, why? How could you possibly? She was not a fire-breathing Nazi as a teenager, when she when she first met Hitler, it, it, the attraction was not political. She really had no politics at that time, and uh, through the rest of her life, she just went along. She was happy to be the consort of what she called the greatest man in the world, and she loved that role. I can't read that without just trying to figure out what it was. How did she live with herself? How did she look in the mirror in the morning? And I thought, you know, I'm using food to get to all these other lives. If I can use it to get to Ava Brown, maybe food will tell me something I couldn't get elsewhere. She, like anybody in that position, knew what was going on. So how does she live with it? That was the question to myself. How do you do that? And the answer through food is what? I felt that she... She lived in this bubble that she created around herself. She created a fantasy world. She was the star of that fantasy world. She was a slim, and that's a key word, beautiful young woman. And she never had to uh, go any deeper in herself than that, than to be a slim, beautiful young woman. And that's all she required of the world around her was that it be hmm. beautiful and that she look only at the surface. So the the kind of key moment in her fantasy life as it played out were these meals where she could fulfill this whole fantasy that she was the beautiful consort of this powerful man. Barbara Pym, why don't you describe who she is before we get into uh, food? She was a wonderful novelist, a British novelist who published mostly in the 50s and 60s. And a bit later than that, her books are full of food. These uh, characters are just cooking and eating all the time. And they are doing it because that's what Barbara Pym did. She loved food. She was intensely interested in it. And she always, uh, she would sort of rail at novels and biographies that didn't tell you what people were eating. And she vowed that when she started writing her own, she would always put in the food. And she did. In fact, her favorite way to do research for her characters and plots was to sit in lions, you know, the, the, the cafeterias that were so big and important for decades. And she would sit in a corner there on her lunch hour and she would watch what people put on their trays, and she'd watch them carry it to the table next to her, and she would eavesdrop. She would hear them talking about it, and she's writing it all down. So these became her characters. You know, if you go around life, as I do, and I bet you do too, thinking about food and looking at what people eat, Barbara Pym is your novelist. (laughs) Helen Gurley Brown, I met her many years ago, uh, and her husband, and she, yeah... If she weighed 90 pounds, I'd be surprised. She, you mentioned the book. She talks about there were three pleasures in life, eating, sex, and breathing. But ultimately, her quote is, if I eat, I feel guilty, and I'd rather feel hungry. So she she didn't eat much, right? 
No, she was really full of conflicts about food. She writes passionately and devotedly about these artificially sweetened foods and uh, foods full of these chemical ingredients. She goes into such raptures about them. I can't understand whether she genuinely loved them, whether she learned to love this food, whether she was always fooling herself about them. How true was the passion, but it was certainly in the words. She went on and on. This is heaven. This is delicious. This is skinny to me is sacred, she used to say. Anything that would keep her thin was what she called heaven. So just going forward, do, do you think people's relationship with food in the past, we're talking in the you know two generations ago here for most of these people, is very different than the, the modern era, the 21st century? Oh, I think those things don't change. I think uh, we have – the food changes, our lives change, gender roles change, everything changes, but I think – relationships with food and what it means and its power in our lives, this intimate, incredibly important preoccupation that's the first thing we know when we're born. It's one of the last things we know before we die. So yeah, I think um, I think food food can still tell us an enormous amount. Uh, Laura Shapiro, thank you so much. What She Ate, a great book. Thank you. Thank you. That was Laura Shapiro, author of the book What She Ate. Eleanor Roosevelt relegated cooking to a necessary job that should be dispatched as efficiently as possible. And of course, the food itself was used as a tool, a symbol of national austerity. You know, America has long held this dichotomy between food as fuel and then food as pleasure. In fact, some of our favorite dishes, take macaroni and cheese, were actually inspired by army rations. You know, cooking is not time wasted, it's time well spent. Or to paraphrase a famous political one-liner, it's the cooking, stupid. Right now, I'm heading into the Mill Street kitchen to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe. Catherine, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. Uh, a little bit of, of travelogue. Uh, I've been to Morocco a few times, and right in the main square in Marrakesh at night, there's a lot of uh, little restaurants, and they grill food, and they grill kofta, which are skewers of, of meat, patties, lamb or beef, uh, usually obviously with some spice to it. Uh, and also in Istanbul, there's a place or places near the top copy in the Blue Mosque. They also serve them. You can deep fry them, they can grill them, they cook them in a skillet. But kofta is really the Middle Eastern and North African version of meatball. So we wanted to bring kofta to Milk Street, so how do we get started? So we started by really simplifying the whole technique and making it very easy to make at home, even on a weeknight. You mentioned those lovely spices in the meatballs. For ours, we use cumin uh, and also cinnamon, which you might think of as like a baking spice, but it adds really lovely warmth to beef or lamb or whatever you choose to use in your meatballs. Well, there's also cinnamons used all over the Middle East and North Africa with savory food. Right? It's true. It's true. And, it, and it's a lovely way to bring out those warm, savory notes in the meatball. So we add that and a little oregano and then some shallot for flavor. And get this, Chris, we actually, instead of blooming the spices in oil on the stovetop, we just stick it in the microwave. Yeah, it's a very traditional Ottoman Empire technique, right? <laughs> of course. Yes, exactly. But I promise it's really quick um, and it does the job. It really brings out the flavors um, by blooming the spices and it, and it softens that, that shallot. So th these are meatballs, but in Italian meatball, they use a panade, which is usually bread and some milk and they mash it together. 
that holds the meat together, but also makes it very moist, even if you overcook it a little bit. So were we going to apply that here so they don't get overcooked? We are. Um, of course, with meatballs, you always want to keep them moist. So we decided to take pita, because this is a Middle Eastern dish, and we're going to serve it with pita, and actually just blend that with some whole milk yogurt to make our panade. Uh, and you said you cook in a skillet? Yes, you cook it in the skillet. By pan frying, you get that nice crisp crust. Uh, and because kofta are a little bit flattened, they're more like patties than meatballs, they're going to cook through right on the stovetop just by browning both sides really well. And then you serve it in a pita, you said? Uh, the cooked patties fit neatly in a pita pocket, and we drizzle it with a tangy yogurt sauce that has lime, tahini, cayenne, and a little bit of salt. So uh, it's pita pocket patties. Say that three times fast. Thank you, Catherine. You're welcome, Chris. You can find our recipe for Turkish meatballs with lime yogurt sauce at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions and dilemmas with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, after the break. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time uh, with Sarah Moulton, my co-host, to take some of your calls. Sarah, are you ready and willing? I am looking forward to it. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is David calling from Fukuoka, Japan. Wow. That's a first. Um, that's good. I'm impressed. Yeah, we like that. That's pretty good. I own a small baking business here, and uh, recently I had a request for apple pie, the Dutch apple pie with the crumb topping. Mm-hmm. Right. Years ago, I did a crumb topping, and I remember that the recipe said to melt the butter first and then mix it with the flour and the sugar. Really? Hmm. I don't ever remember it being that great. And so when I was looking for recipes this time, it called for cutting the butter in like right. I was making a biscuit or type of pastry. Yeah, that's how yeah, I would do it. The first time yeah. I did it, it kind of turned out sandy. I, I don't think I mixed the butter in enough. And so the next time I, I looked at another recipe that said to really rub the butter in and create pieces. Right. But when I did that, it created like a candy shell yeah. on the pie. The chunks were rather more like cinnamon rock candy than the nice soft <laughs> crumb topping what, that, what that kind, I'm accustomed to. What kind of sugar are you using? Let's see, I think it was a mixture of white and brown sugar. You're using ground nuts. What are you using? Flour. White flour, butter, and two kinds of sugar. Right. Well, first of all, I have a very strong preference here. I hate apple pie with crumb topping. The problem with crumb (laughs) topping, well, I know, that's just personal, but, you know, pastry crust is the perfect thing with apples, and crumb toppings, they're too sweet. And you have also, a sweet filling with a sweet yeah, topping. Yeah, it just doesn't just make any sweet, sense sweet, to sweet. me. And also, they can get soggy because they're sitting on fruit, unlike on top of a muffin. Right. But that's not your question. Your question is, how do you avoid the hard topping? Maybe the universe is telling you something. There's a it's hint a bad idea. <laughs> yes, it's really no, no, just no. a bad this, idea. This has worked before. I think the brown sugar would work better than the white sugar, just because it's more moist. You know, it's got that molasses in it. So yeah. maybe that would help. Unless it's been sitting in my pantry for and six I, months. And I would think mixing it really well is a bad idea because then the butter yeah. is just going to melt too quickly and the sugar is maybe going to caramelize. I would put it in a standing mixer with a paddle under low speed to mix it up. Uh-huh. I would do it with my hands. Did you use your hands to cut the butter in? Well, the first time when it turned in 
to just like a sandy texture, right. I was using a pastry cutter. Right. Mm-hmm. And the second time you did, the when it turned time, hard, it was your hands? Yeah. I mixed everything all together until it created a solid lump and then just broke pieces off. Uh, it doesn't sound right. I think what happened there is the butter melted, melted. and the sugar caramelized, right. and that's why you got like that hard crack on top. Cutting the pie was interesting. It had that nice crackle. Yeah, it's sort of like a creme brulee <laughs> pie. No, what happened was the butter got too soft. In the bowl, it should be a rough textured mixture, right? Yeah. And it should not form together in a dough. Oh, okay. No, it, it should shouldn't. be very dry. So co- colder butter and make sh- And I would use the pastry blender or a food processor or and a standing don't mixer. don't overmix it. And don't overmix it. Yeah. And then throw it oh, out okay. anyway and just use pie crust. <laughs> All right, David. Thank you for calling all the way from Japan. <laughs> yes. Okay, well, thank you very much, and I really enjoy your show. Thanks for listening. Okay. Take okay. Care. Bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Cheryl Bird from Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm doing well. How can we help you? Well, I have a question. Uh, what's your take on sugar blends like Truvia? Are they a good substitute in recipes like barbecue sauce and dry rubs? Well, first of all, yeah, my wife uses that, and uh, I, I would just say the amount of calories you save, if that's the reason you use it, is is really not that much. I think it's fine in any recipe that's liquid, like a barbecue sauce is fine. The only time you get in trouble, real trouble, with the artificial sweetener is when you're baking uh, a cake, for example, or a cookie. You cannot substitute them for sugar. It's just really problematic. But a rub probably, and a barbecue sauce would probably be fine, right? Are you uh, asking this question for diabetic reasons or just to cut back on calories? I'm diabetic and I'm finding it really hard to give up cakes and baked goods and stuff like that. So I'm trying to find a way that I can maybe have some. I just want to know, am I fooling myself? Are these blends really good for that type of thing? or For baked goods, when you bake, like a cake or cookie, it's very problematic unless the recipe is engineered specifically why, for that. Why would that be problematic in baked goods? What? Because sugar is hygroscopic. It attracts water and it reacts chemically in a cake in a very particular way. It's not just there for its yeah. sweetness. And artificial sweeteners don't have the same chemistry. So you will not get the same texture in the cake. It will not rise the same way will not attract moisture in the same it way. It won't be as moist. But if you're doing oh. a fruit cobbler, for example, or if you're doing a barbecue sauce, anytime there's a liquid dessert, it's fine because it'll just melt. But if you're talking about cake structure, then that's dicey. Okay, I, I so assume they're cookbooks that have... Yeah, there's, there's a website yeah. on the Truvia bag that I haven't checked out yet. I'm trying to get some information before I you know, go that route. But I'm thinking maybe... It would be a personal preference kind of thing. Maybe if I bake something and see how it turned out. That's what I would do. Empirical evidence. Give it a shot. Mm, See how you like it. You never know. They might have engineered these recipes to make up the difference with something else. You mean that website? Yes. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I would definitely try a recipe that's engineered specifically for that, yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, they probably figured it out. But you're thinking that for, like, the brown sugar blend for a dry rub, that... No problem. It'll be the same... No problem. I mean, the only time you have a problem is structural problems in baking. But if it's just a dry rub, it's it's fine. No problem at all. That would be good. Okay, well, thank you for the information. Sure. Okay, Cheryl. Thanks for Give calling. Give it a shot. Let us know. All right. Bye. Bye. Take care. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. 
Call us at 855-426-9843. That number one more time and slower is 855-426-9843. Or just send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Joe. Hi, Joe. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Fayetteville, Georgia, which is a small town south of Atlanta. We moved here recently from Los Angeles, and I ran into a woman, and we were talking about food and wine. And then she texted me a photograph of chanterelle mushrooms that she had foraged right behind her house. Really? And she said they like damp and oak trees, and we have both of those. We harvested three and a half pounds. What? We were just astounded. Chanterelle are wonderful. That was two weeks ago, and they actually lasted very well with us eating as much as we possibly could. And that's actually why I was calling. Sort of obvious thing was to saute them with butter and shallots or onions, which we've done. And then we had them with pasta and cream, and that was really good. And we've had them with scrambled eggs. It's like, this is a question I never thought I would face. It's like, what do you do with an overabundance of chanterelle mushrooms? It sounds like you need a break from chanterelle. I mean, enough with chanterelle. So maybe you want to start freezing them. But you have to cook them first. Okay. So chop them up fine to a duck cell or just slice them and saute them in butter well, with shallots. Why don't you explain what duck cell is just in case? Okay, duck cell is a French mixture that's used a lot where you chop up the mushrooms really, really fine. And then you saute right. some shallots. Again, same formula. And then you add the chopped mushrooms and you cook them and you get all the water out. And then, you and know. would you use the chanterelles for the duck cell? Yeah. Finely chopped a portion and then the rest. Sure. Bigger Okay. That you could do that, or you could just wonderful. slice them, saute them, and freeze them. And then you've got instant sauce for chicken or even salmon, you know. You... Don't you put it, when I learned to make this a long time ago, didn't you add a little brandy or cognac to chanterelle? Certainly, yes. yes. Of course, you forgot to mention that. That's I'm never sorry. a bad idea. Yeah, no, never a bad wine. Idea. But I think freeze them, and then in the middle of winter, you know, or fall, you're going to be so excited. You're going to be like, what's for dinner tonight? Oh, I've got those chanterelles. All I need to do is... You know, add some chicken broth and make it into a sauce for roast chicken or some cream and put it on top of pasta. And if you freeze them, you do not wash them first, right? You just freeze them. No, you would cook them. Oh, you blanch them first. Not water. I would, again, do butter. Because I think water would make them bland. So I would saute them, either in olive oil or in butter. The thing about freezing vegetables is you always need to get rid of the excess liquid because that is what breaks down their structure later on and uh, makes them form ice crystals. So, Well, I like the idea of freezing them and having them on a rainy Sunday afternoon for lunch. That sounds Or turn them into a soup. This is a problem we all should... Yeah, have. we're really jealous, yeah. frankly. <laughs> no one could be more shocked than we are. That sounds just <laughs> fabulous. The Chanterelle heaven. It is. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is about chopping onions. You know, I remember cooking classes when the chef would actually measure the size of your diced onions with a ruler. Large, medium, small, or even those tiny brunoise. But for most recipes here at Milk Street, coarsely chopped onions are just fine. They don't have to be perfect, and you're not going to grate it on your knife skills. In fact, if you're cooking a soup or a stock, and if you're going to strain the broth later... You can even leave the skin on the onion. It'll actually add color. Now, there's only one exception to this rule, and that's when onions are used raw in a salad or a similar recipe. You do need smaller, evenly chopped pieces for consistent flavor. 
Kenji Lopez-Alt is author of The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science, and he's also the newest contributor to Milk Street Radio. Today, he discusses the science of marinades. Kenji, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Uh, let's talk about something that I, I've been back and forth about for 35 years, which is marinades. Uh, mm-hmm. Do they work? Do they really tenderize? Do they penetrate the meat or the, the poultry? And also, if you add things like garlic, do they actually mm-hmm. add flavor or not? So let's start at the beginning. Do marinades okay. tenderize? Well, they do. I mean, you know, you know, it depends on what ingredients you have in there. So certain ingredients, proteases, um, uh, ingredients that have enzymatic compounds that are going to break down proteins, they definitely tenderize. So you know, that, that would include things like pineapple juice, papaya juice, soy sauce acts as a protease, and um, salt itself can act as a protease. So those things definitely tenderize. The, the other things that tenderize are acids. The question, of course, though, is is whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, um, and I think that that varies on a case by case basis, and it, it also varies on depending on concentration uh, and and also depending on the length of exposure. So, um, you know, if if you have something like say a chicken breast in the, in a marinade that has a lot of lemon juice in it, you know, it, it can help tenderize it a little bit, but um, eventually, you know, if you let it sit there for too long, the acid and lemon juice denature so many proteins that you end up with a sort of chalky, right. mushy texture, which you know. For for something like say uh, like a tandoori chicken um, or or you know a dish like that where you're going to be marinating overnight and actually some of that texture is meant to be in that dish that's an okay thing but if you're just going to be throwing a chicken breast on the grill I tend not to like that sort of mushy texture you end up with. Well, about a year ago, I I worked with someone and did the numbers, and it, it turns out let's mm-hmm. set salt aside. Let's assume there's no salt in the marinade, which is right. a different animal. The numbers I got was the penetration rate right. is not good. It takes forever. And so it's you low. end up yeah. with a quarter-inch uh, penetration. And beef is particularly difficult to penetrate versus right. fish. Uh, so you don't really get into, let's say, a, a thick cut, right? It's just the surface. Yeah, it is. And uh, the te- in the testing I did, it was, yeah, it was it was a couple mil- millimeters right. per day right. that you end up with. And, you know, the way we tested that was we took um, a bunch of chicken breasts, put them into marinades of various strengths. And yeah, beyond the outer couple millimeters after an overnight marinade, um, you, there was no detectable flavor at all. Salt penetrates a little better, but uh, the actual sort of aromatic compounds don't penetrate really beyond the outer layers. And uh, other thing is, I, my understanding is something like garlic, we're dealing mm-hmm. with like carbon molecules, right? I mean, it's not, that stuff just doesn't get in. There are very few of them. They're very large versus sodium chloride, sodium and, and chloride right. ions. So salt does penetrate fairly quickly, but other stuff like garlic doesn't, right? Yeah, exactly. Salt, salt penetrates quickly. Um, larger things don't really. Um, so yeah, I mean, mar- marinades are essentially a, a surface treatment. So we, now we need to answer the question, do we marinate or not? And if we do, when do we do it? I mean, you know, we do marinate. If if you like, if you like that kind of flavor, you do marinate. Obviously, people have been doing it for a long time, and it obviously does add flavor. It's just a question of where that flavor goes. So, um, obviously, some cuts of meat take to marinades better than others. Um, so, if you're if you're doing uh, like a piece of beef. Um, 
uh, sort of looser cuts with lo- with uh, lar- uh, more large grain texture. So things like hanger steak or flank right. steak or skirt steak, they tend to take marinades better than something with a much finer texture like a, like a tenderloin or a ribeye or, or, or a New York strip. Um, just because, you know, there, there's sort of those macro pockets in the meat that e- even visually you can see that there's, there's more space for that marinade to cling to. So the more surface area you have on the meat, the better uh, the flavor of that marinade is going to stick to it and penetrate. So thinner cut, a looser grain. And, and what about marinades that have a lot of salt, like soy sauce? That's a good thing? Uh, it is, yeah. You know, um, So salt is different from most other things in marinades because salt, uh, you know, when it's in a liquid environment, will actually dissolve certain muscle proteins. Um, and this can help. Um, well, f- first of all, it helps some of the salt move into the meat. Um, so salt can, salt can penetrate meat much faster than most other things can. Um, so you can season meat more thoroughly with salt. Um, from you know all the way from edge to center if you let it if you let it sit long enough and the other thing that salt does is by breaking down those proteins it helps meat contract less as it's cooking and thereby push out less moisture right. meats that have been marinated with a salty marinade will retain more moisture as they cook um, it, you know it's a, a measurable amount of, of moisture will be retained so a marinade should have salt uh, thinner cuts are better than thicker cuts uh, looser textures mm-hmm. better than tighter texture And in general, the flavor doesn't get deep into the meat, but uh, you do get some flavor, at least on the outside, a couple millimeters. Absolutely. Kenji, thank you very much. Uh, Now I I think I understand the science of marinades. Thanks. Thank you. That was Kenji Lopez-Alt. He's author of The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science. Early in the show, I spoke to Amy Gutman, who went to Okinawa to have ice cream at the Blue Seal Ice Cream Shop. You know, Blue Seal ice cream offers flavors from another world. How about royal milk tea or purple yam or sea salt cookie, bitter melon or Okinawa cheesecake? Well, that pretty much sums up where the world is headed. These days, a food truck in Portland, Oregon, actually offers cheeseburger Chinese dumplings. You can order spaghetti tacos with meatballs and guacamole. And in South Korea, one can choose from over 30,000 fried chicken establishments with dishes that are spicy, cheesy, or simply sticky sweet. All that makes me think that Howard Johnson's original 28 flavors seem downright old-fashioned. That's it for this week's show. You can listen to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, also on Google Play or Spotify. Remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, go to our website, 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our TV show, or order our all-new Milk Street cookbook. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer, Amy Padula. Associate producer, Carly Helmetag. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Our theme music is by 2Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.